I don't like when people say welcome back to another edition of this podcast. You don't like that? No. You don't you don't like welcoming people into their ear holes? Like you don't you don't like to It's important. Yeah. I just don't like this. Welcome back to episode 117 of OU Radio with your hosts Sasha Bloom and Johnny McKeon. Yeah, Johnny McKeon, your voice of choice for earhole media. Like <laughs> my thinking is if you have a good show, you don't need to introduce yourself. Yeah, that's true. They should know who we are by now. Is that what you're saying? I don't want to sound pretentious like that, but sure. Hello, everybody. How are you? I hope you had a beautiful week. I hope you worked your ass off, made some sweet love, (laughs) and you're ready to do it all over again. (laughs) Made some sweet love. Yeah. Uh, It's important. It is. No, it is important. It's just just weird hearing you say that. (laughs) I guess, I guess, I mean, like you, you want to well wish someone, yeah. But I guess, like, I've never really wished someone to make sweet love. But I guess, I guess that it's a nice sentiment. I guess that's why I'm not a professional broadcaster. Yeah. Like, can you go on the radio as Johnny Promo and say, "Hello, ladies. I hope you made sweet love this weekend." Nah, I don't. I don't know if I could say that. You, you know? should. Yeah. Push, maybe push the limits. Yeah, push the buttons. You know. <laughs> We have a fantastic show today, good sir. Yeah? We have, in my mind, it's tough to even say this, but the best TV anchor in the state of Utah in probably several states. Uh, yeah, I could, I could agree with that. You Kim know? Fisher. Yeah, Kim, Kim Fisher of Good For Utah EBC4. She, I, I, got to, I had the pleasure of working with her for almost two years, and I was impressed every day. Every day she brought it. Like I don't think I've I don't I, I really cannot think of a time when she like flubbed or messed up or just looked unprofessional. Like when and I remember when she would put her foot down, it would happen. Yeah. Things would change. And that's immediately I I got she got my respect immediately. But it was never with a lack of professionalism. Never. It was never with like as beautiful as she is, as brilliant as she is, as such a great humanitarian as she is, mm-hmm. she would always take time for the people that really meant nothing to her at her work environment, like me. Yeah. Like she'd follow me on Twitter. She would ask me, hey, how are you? Like end of the show, I really appreciate the job you did for me. Yeah. Like a lot of talent doesn't do that. No. And you've probably worked with talent like that. Yeah. And I think that that's what separates her from everybody else is her kindness and her loving kindness that she has. Yeah. I don't understand. Well, I don't think a lot of people understand how difficult of a job it is to be the anchor at four o'clock for your news department. It's Mm -hmm. a high stress job. There's really no days off. And the public pressure to maintain a perfect image is nearly impossible to deal with i would think yeah like, we'll have to ask her this i mean yeah she i mean and she's such a professional she would read every script she'd know what to say she she wouldn't stumble on a word because she's already read it like twice like i prepare preparation was was very the amount of preparation she would do is very apparent see i worked at abc when it was brent huntsecker yeah and kim fisher doing the news yeah and the amount of professionalism that you were witness to was awe-inspiring between those two. And there were times when we went dark and there was no communication and so there's no teleprompter. Yeah. And they were fine. Mm-hmm. You couldn't tell. Mm-hmm. 
you know, maybe you'd see a more exaggerated pause from Brent Hunsaker, but he free formatted a lot of what he did. Yeah. You know, just brilliant television that she creates. Her stories, her features that she does for sweeps, they're impactful. They're I do like her features. Yeah. Her healthfulness and her wanting to convey to the community of being healthy, of changing your diet, of getting out and going for a walk is inspiring to a fat person like me. <laughs> like, I'm not going to do it, but I like watching it on TV. Yeah. You know, uh, you like, you like thinking about thinking about doing it. Yeah. It's like yeah. this girl was, I was talking to this girl the other day and she's like, I was like, what are you going to go do? And she's like, I'm going to go work out. I was like, you know, you can watch that on TV, right? <laughs> you don't have to do it. <laughs> There's no one forcing you to. Yeah. But as gorgeous as Kim is, I've never seen her that way. I just see a perfect human being. I, I see a pro. Yeah. You know, like I definitely, I don't, I don't worry about messing up, but I do ensure that I bring my A game because I know she's bringing hers. You know what I mean? Like I was thinking a lot about her last night not in a creepy way but because we're interviewing her today mm -hmm. and i could easily see her being a feature sideline reporter for fox sport one yeah where she's making two and a half three million dollars for six months yeah. i could see her in sport television yeah and you know it's, there's an interesting argument that i want or a conversation i want to get into her with her is the conversation I had with uh, Professor Craig Worth from the University of Utah. Yeah. Because I was working in journalism. like That's why I went back to school. And then I got hit with this job offer to work in sport. Yeah. And he was like, the money's better. The traveling's fantastic. But one day you're going to wake up and you're going to miss the newsroom. Mm -hmm. And you're never going to go back. Mm -hmm. And I want to know why she stayed in a newsroom. Because she has the look of a model. She could be on magazines she could be in movies she could do she could host a morning show she could she could do all that and she's probably been offered yeah and so why stay especially in a number 33 market so lots of interesting questions for her and that interview will come shortly yes i'm excited <laughs> what did you like working in journalism was that something that you thought long term i could do this i my thoughts on journalism, I don't know. I've always, I've always enjoyed, enjoyed the news. I almost kind of consider it a hobby. Like it's something I enjoy reading every day because it's something new every day, hence the word news. But working in it, working in it was interesting because well, the environment I worked in, I was able you know, to learn multiple different positions at once. So I found that invaluable. Any, anything that allows me to learn more is valuable to me. You know, So I definitely enjoyed my experience at ABC4, good for Utah. Mm -hmm. But the idea of working for another news station doesn't appeal to me. Did you find it stressful? Yes and no, I guess. I found it challenging at first, and that's where the stress would come. I found it very stressful, and I don't think it's the job. I think it's the satellites and servers and amount of electricity. Yeah. And I think my body picked up on it. The one thing I, I – as, as opposed to working in TV – as opposed to working in TV compared to radio now – I have noticed that I get less migraines. Yeah. I'm sleeping better at night. Like, definitely being around all those screens really bothered me. Oh, it was, hor it was like, hard. It, it, it was really hard. Like, I would, I would get pretty bad migraines about once a month. Like, that third weekend of the month, like, I would just get massive migraines. I, I worked a weird shift. Like, television is weird hours. Yeah. People that 
because I, I don't think a lot of people in our generation watch the news. Mm-mm. But the shifts are 3.30 in the morning to noon or 4 to noon and then 11 or 3 to 11. Yeah. And so, you know, when 3 I was... 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I was working there, I would not see daylight except for driving from my house to the studio because at 11 o'clock after working a news feed, you're not, it's not a job where you're exhausted. Your brain is completely stimulated because you've been hit with the adrenaline of live news five times a day, yeah. which is quite a rush. Yes. There's nothing like 10, 9, 8, 3, 2, 1, it's yours. Yeah. Because you screw up. Everyone sees it. You're going to get yelled at. And everyone sees it. Everyone sees it. Everyone sees it. And I guess what was stressful for me, I, I always found live sports to be more stressful than like the news. Like like when, when we when we first met on a Pac twelve set mm-hmm. and like the whole Pac twelve element to me, like I it really like that that the idea of doing that stressed me out more than doing the news. And I, I don't really have an answer why. But I I feel like the news I felt a lot more comfortable on a news set than I felt on you know, a professional sports broadcasting set. How, what, what about for you? I think that you're right. I think the stress is amped because there's more money involved. Yeah. You know, you're talking about a $60,000 shoot in 12 hours. Mm-hmm. And it's a very long day. It's a and very it's long a day. physically demanding jobs. Those cameras are not, not heavy. And, like, if you're doing it at the Ute Stadium... You got to take them upstairs, yeah. Not because not all the poaches are. You can go to the terminal. Some of the stuff, like the south end zone, you got to hike hundreds of pounds of cameras up, and then you got to hike it down after an exhausting shoot. Like if you go to Utah State, I will never work a game at Utah State until that construction's done. Really? Like when ESPN comes in and was doing their Friday night B package, I did a couple of shows up there. Yeah, and. They have no elevators going to the press box and no elevators going to the roof of the press box where the three hard cameras are. Every piece of equipment has to be taken up four flights of stairs. Ugh. 35 trips. Yeah. In the winter. Yeah. 10 degrees. Yeah. And and that equipment's not light. <laughs> you know, in television, people treat the maintenance people so poorly, generally speaking, yeah. that they're not going to shovel those stairs all nice and there's going to be ice on them. Yeah. And so as you're, you know, on your 15th trip carrying 50 pounds of gear with someone else taking another 50 pounds, you got to worry about twisting your knee. And if you twist your knee, you know, you're freelancing, so you don't have insurance through them. Like getting workers comp through ESPN is not going to be easy. No. Not because they don't want to give it to you. It's just. It's just not easy. It's a lot of paperwork. one of the biggest corporations in the world. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's why I liked working in the news is because I didn't have to set anything up. I just had to put the cameras in their spots. Yeah. You know, I didn't have to iris. I didn't have to edit. I didn't have to check the cards. I didn't have to. I didn't have to do any of that. You know, the, it's all there and it's all ready to go. That the, the one thing I had to do was make sure the cameras were pumped up. Yeah. That was it. Which is hard. It is hard. And scary because no one decides to check it until 10 minutes before show. Yep. Yep. Because I don't know why. Yeah, because things fall through the cracks. No. (laughs) (laughs) That is not it. (laughs) Uh, A lot of corporations don't understand the importance of great quality equipment. Like they just look at the price tag. Oh, for a stand for a camera, oh, it's $80,000. We don't need it. Yeah. You do it. 
you do it for six shows a day, five days a week, seven days a week, and have to pump that thing up. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not a good experience. No. But I would rather do that than like other studios at Fox and KSL who are automated. I don't think KSL is. I think Channel 2 is. Channel Channel 2 is automated for sure. I, I don't know what KSL does. I don't, I don't really know much about KSL. I uh, know on your Instagram there's pictures, I don't know if you still have them up, but of Master Control yeah. at ABC. And when I was there, you know, my favorite thing to do would be to talk to their chief engineer, Bob Lyon, yeah. or other people who had been there for 22 years. And learning that that Master Control used to be full yeah. for every shift, every show. And now there's what, a producer, a director, and an audio guy. Mm-hmm. And everything is empty. Yep. That sucks. Like we used to have, they used to have a Chiron op, the guy who would, you know, make the little, the lower third stuff pop up, you know, yeah. like they don't even have that, you know, they used to have a technical director, Yeah, you know, they, they don't have that. And, you know, one of the problems I have about the news is even though like George Severson, when I interviewed him, he was like, I don't subscribe to the bleeds at leads type story. I think it's dark. I think it's depressing. But just because a news director feels that way doesn't mean his producers feel that way. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of producers that are very lazy because the job is very difficult. Like you're writing or co-writing six, seven, eight stories for the four o'clock show. And then you got to turn around and there's going to be a couple of stories coming from the field that you've got to edit and correct. And it's a very because you're writing and writing is difficult and it's stressful and it's out there and you're sitting all day and you're not in the sun and you're by all these computer screens and all these satellite fields and you're under a deadline and you're under a deadline a hard deadline and you don't have a tech under you or a trainee under you who's getting paid 35 40 grand a year to take the burden off yeah and so you see that three killed one dead on an accident baby dies of whatever uh, this person raped this person, this person raped that person. And at the end of that half hour, as a viewer, you're afraid to leave your house. Yeah. And I always believed in my early 20s that it was intentional, that they're trying to create this. Sensationalism. That, that it's, uh, it's the Illuminati creating the negativity of and creating the disenfranchisement through violence. But I don't think it is. I think it's a tough job from a producer's angle. I think it's a tough job, and I think you have to prioritize, and I think it's easier to prioritize when it's, you know, someone, you know, three dead, two living. Like, like that's that's a bigger story than, say, you know, the budget was passed for Congress or something. You know, like, certain stories, like, are just catch people's attention yeah. more than others. Because, I don't know, because I look at that, because, you know, I post a lot of news articles, and, like, I, I, try, to, I try to balance it out, you know? Like, I don't want to be just all, you know death and destruction and you know the economy and this and that like i try to you know put in stories that feel good too but it's tough and that's one of the things that's also part of kim fisher's job is she's the editor of her show yeah while she's doing it live because in those 80 pages that are in front of her on the teleprompter there's stories she's not going to go to mm-hmm. there's going to be breaking news there's a lot going on and she's tweeting, and she's on Instagram, and she's dealing with old laptops. Doing and, promos in between shows. Yes. Yeah. Preparing for her next show. So let's talk to her. Yeah. Let's ask her these questions because it's one thing to have two hacks like us who aren't in the industry anymore. 
And we have a woman that's going to be on television for the next 35 years yeah. who's been doing it for 15 years yeah. and is the hardest working woman in television and a hero of mine. And of our, ours. Of ours. Yes. And hopefully you all will get to see how fantastic this woman is as long as we don't bungle it up. So, <laughs> yeah. With that said, let's go to break. When we get back, news anchor, ABC4, Good For Utah, Kim Fisher with us on the telephone. Yep. Sweet. Are we recording? Hey, it's Hooker and Brooke from Rock 106.5 and you're listening to Old Ute Radio. Hey everybody, this is George Severson, news director at ABC4 Utah and CW30 and MeTV. You're listening to Old Ute Radio. Have a great day. And welcome back to All Ute Radio. This is Sasha Bloom, Johnny McKeon in studio. Hello. And on the telephone, we have one of the hardest working, most professional journalists I've ever met. Kim Fisher, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Oh, it's my great pleasure to finally uh, talk to you again. I uh, used to work over with you probably three or four years ago, teleprompting and working with engineering. And you were one of those people that would always say hello and thank you to me and working in media for the last five or six years not a lot of talent do that so thank you really yeah yeah <laughs> definitely bad. you're the uh, you're kind of an exception to the rule for sure oh, thanks guys well I'm, I'm sad to hear that that's the case but i'm glad to know that somebody recognizes my niceness i guess <laughs> <laughs> i appreciate it <laughs> on my last day working there i said to you and I thanked you for how hard you work because it inspired me to work harder as a man. Every time I saw you, whether there were technical problems, whether there were script issues, like you would get frustrated, but you never lost your cool. You never blamed anybody. You were just really that consummate team leader, you know, that yeah. news anchor. And for us little guys, it was really important. That means the world to me, honestly, because, you know, I, I do see everybody in that studio as a team. And at the end of the day, while you obviously, as an employee, want your manager's recognition, what means more to me is that my team um, recognizes the work that I do and appreciates how we are together as a team. So thank you, guys. One of the things that impresses me about your willingness to be kind to people is you don't have to. You're on television every day in front of 50,000 people. You could go to a bigger market. You could go in sports and be a sideline reporter. But you seem really interested in taking care of your community and the people that work under you. And that's a learned behavior. Does that come from your parents? Is that something that you work on daily? You know, it, it is something I work on daily um, because I think, not think, I know by a lot of reading and psychology that I've done that it is human nature to think of yourself first. Um, but at the end of the day, we as a society are only going to get better as if, if we think of others first. And so that that is a conscious decision that I make. And it's something that I realized as, as a young person, um, I, I didn't like the way it felt when people didn't think of me. And so I always want to treat others the way that I want to be treated. 
And so that's exactly that's exactly why I do it. I think about how I used to be treated badly, and I never want to do that to anybody else. It's apparent because your your professionalism. I always considered you like the leader of our crew because I, I I remember one of my first days, we were having an issue where we couldn't hear you know Jim Kozak out in the field, and you just in the meeting you're like I'm done. I'm done with that not being, you know, fixed. And then the next day it was fixed. And that's when I knew, okay, like this, this lady means business. Like she's, <laughs> she's, she's the, the, the go-to, the go-to gal in the studio. And yeah, I, I've, I've been impressed with, you know, with you ever since. What, what, what got you into the news? You know, um, I started reading a newspaper when I was five years old and I was just really, really interested in current events and, I was always very curious. I was always asking questions. I loved to read. Um, and at a young age, I want to say it was probably junior high, I would, my parents would flip on the news, and my siblings would run out and be like, I'm going to go outside and play. And I would sit there on the news and watch what was happening and watch what people would say. And um, there was a woman, she's actually still in the Houston, Texas market right now. Her name is Dominique Soxa. And I watched her go from a reporter in, an, in a helicopter for Mix 96 in Houston to a reporter at the NBC station. Then she became morning anchor. Now she's the evening anchor. And there was just something about her demeanor and spirit and how nice she was to everyone. And I always saw her out at community events doing things. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to make an impact on my community in a positive way. And if I can use my curiosity and my ability to write in the, in the process, let's do it. Did you ever have stage fright when you were working at the high school newspaper or when you got into college and started doing classes in broadcasting? Or were you just. Oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) Yes. You know what? High school wasn't that bad because, you know, you're all just kind of, you know, joking around and goofing off and being friends. By the time I got to college, that's when I was really getting in front of cameras and actually learning how to use cameras and one-man banding and anchoring and, and that kind of stuff, and then doing my internship at the NBC station in Dallas. And I tell you what, every time I would get in front of that camera, especially on my internship, in front of a really amazing reporter, I would be so nervous for her to watch me that I would forget what I was supposed to say. And so somehow I made it past that point in my life and made it to my first market in Abilene, Texas. And when I was a morning anchor there, the first time I anchored, I was so nervous. It was an hour-long show. I had had my hands flat on the desk, like gripping for my life. The show was over. I had sweat handprints on the desk, and then I lifted up my arms, not even lying to you, I had sweat through my long sleeve shirt and through my blazer. Wow. I was so nervous. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's natural when you first start in this business to not want to mess up, and that's kind of where the nerves come from. And so how do you regroup yourself? How do you retrain your mind to let go of that anxiety? Practice, doing yeah. it over and over again, That uh, doing it repetitively. Um, I would have to say... The first several weeks of this business anchoring, I was very nervous, but I started to feel a little more confident, and I started to realize, you know what, I'm going to mess up. I'm human. Everybody messes up. The audience is a lot more forgiving than you think it is. And so as I started to become more comfortable and more myself on air, a lot of that anxiety went away. 
How do you, because um, I, I used to, you know, record promos with you. How do you remember what you're supposed to say so well? Like, you, on the spot, you know, you'll be handed a script, and then you'll have, like, a, less than a minute to read it, and then you're able to just do it. How, how did you build that muscle? Okay, so, so there are two ways that you can go about memorizing scripts. You can literally memorize word for word, but you'll find yourself being more robotic if you do that. Hmm. What I do is I will read it and get the idea of what this story is. So, Johnny, I don't know if you ever heard, you know, I'd read it and I'd ask questions about the yeah. story. So, yeah. you know, is this happening or is that? That way I could get a better feel for the story. And I would still say pretty much the same thing that's on the script, but I would say it in my own words so that I felt comfortable and so that it sounded like it was coming from me, not a robot reading something word for word does that make sense yeah that makes that makes perfect sense yeah because it was like kind of your style yeah it was definitely your flavor right (laughs) put my stank on it that's what i like to say being a journalist comes with a tremendous responsibility you know Mm -hmm. as i was taught you're a window between your community and your government how seriously do you take that i take my job very seriously Uh, probably too seriously sometimes if you ask my boss. But it's only because um, journalism as a craft started out as we were a trustworthy source. We were the people who held others accountable, right? We spoke up for the underdogs. That, That was our job. We needed to be that person that the community can come and trust so that when they give you information, you're going to do the right thing with it. And then when you deliver information, that what you're saying is true and right and just. So I take that to heart with every story that I do. Unfortunately, I feel like our craft is getting further and further away from that for some reason, and it drives me up the wall. But all I can do is focus on myself, and so yes, I take that incredibly seriously. I remember watching people like Brent Hunsucker and you work, or even a Glenn Mills, and day in and day out, the work ethic is noticed, the hours in the studio, on the street is noticed. Do you ever get burnt out? Are there times when you go home, throw your face in your hands, and just say, I'm burnt out? Okay, so I'll tell you this. When you do the day-to-day day-turn packages, so that's the stories that you... You know, you, you find, you shoot, you turn all in one day. You don't really get a lot of time to craft it. You don't get a lot of time to make it creative. Sometimes you don't have all the video that you'd like. Those are the ones, if you do those day in and day out, and, and you get no creativity uh, or excitement, then, yeah, those can get kind of boring and they can burn you out. But as a journalist, when you get to do that investigative piece or when you get to go to breaking news and you're bringing people information you know, right then and there during breaking news. That's the stuff that reinvigorates a journalist. And so as long as we get patches of that every now and then, you know, to kind of remind us, of, yeah, this is why I'm doing my job, I, I think a good journalist has a lot less likelihood of getting burnt out. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Do you ever think about leaving a newsroom and going into... Like another avenue of reporting, like sports reporting. Or, or acting or something of that nature? Yeah. Um, I thought about sports reporting for a while. Uh, I was starting to get my hands in sports reporting when I was in Dallas, Texas. 
And it was fun, but being 100% honest with you guys, I because I was doing entertainment there as well. And while it was fun, the one thing that I did not like about it was I was not taken as seriously as a human being. Mm. People saw me as just a pretty girl. That's the reason I got the job. Entertainment and sports doesn't take much. You know, you're the token cute girl. I didn't like the way that made me feel. I did not because I, I find myself to be intelligent, and I like people to trust in me and to go, man, she's a, she's a smart girl. And I didn't get that with, with sports. And so I kind of backed away and got right back into news again. But no, I mean, this is, honestly, I found my, my place here. You know, I, I met a guy, I got engaged, and he loves it here, and I love it here. So, you know, hopefully I'll continue doing what I'm doing for a really long time. That surprises me, and congratulations, by the way. He's a lucky man. One of the things that surprises me about you still being in a number 33 market is your talent and your person could take you to New York or Los Angeles or Chicago, you know, I'm sure with an agent's phone call and and the right opening. But you, you really embrace this community. Yeah, I really have. There's a lot to love about Utah. Um, you know, aside from when you just look out your window and see how beautiful it is here, the people here really uh, seem seem to care about others. This is uh, one of the most giving states I have ever lived in, one of the most charitable. Uh, there is some sort of event to raise funds for something going on almost every weekend, and I just really like to see that. You know, it comes back to exactly what I was talking about before of, treating others the way that you would want to be treated. And I feel like there's a lot more of that in this state than in many other places. Speaking of which, um, just one of your own personal causes, I, I've noticed that you, you, you always kind of support pit bulls and you <laughs> like, what, what, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. So um, I, my dog, she's actually laying right here next to me right now. Her name is Paris and she is a, she's an almost 12 year old pit bull and I got her when she was four weeks old. And, you know, I, I didn't think much of it because yeah. I never had the whole dog breed stereotype in my head. Um, if anything, I guess growing up it was what Doberman pinchers, but I've met so many nice Dobermans that it's never affected me. And so having Paris um, and seeing how people would react to her in a negative way sometimes, it kind of shocked me. And so I made it a point to put her through all of the best training and make her what I call a good dog ambassador for her breed. Mm-hmm. And so that people, when they meet her, and I say, this is a pit bull, they go, oh my gosh, this is a really nice dog. Because in my opinion, it's not the breed, it's the deed. And the deed usually is because of the owner. Mm. And so there's always going to be freak situations, but at the end of the day, if you rewind back, you can see where it comes down to something that the owner has done. And so, yeah, that's that's my main thing with pit bulls is I would like for people to be, I mean, it's it's kind of like a form of dog racism, and I would like for people to recognize that and go, hey, it's not this one specific breed. It's what's happening around it, because there are a lot of bad people who get the breed for the wrong reasons, and, and we need to see that that's the problem, not the dog. You and your boss, George Severson, and Craig Worth do a lot with animal shelters. Mm-hmm. Have you seen improvement uh, in the last four or five years in the way animals are rescued, in the way 
animals are treated in this community? Or are they still, not by a large percentage of people, but are animals still treated with brutality? We have done a lot better in the state of Utah over the past, I'd say, five years, but we still have a long way to go. Um, we're trying to be no-kill by, uh, I believe it's 2016 or 2019, 2019 um, as a state. Right now, there are several cities that are no-kill when it comes to dogs, but we still have an issue with cats because we haven't really honed in our feral cat programs. Um, we're doing what's called a trap and release right now in a lot of different cities where they trap the feral cats, they fix the feral cats, and then they release them back out in the wild. I feel like that needs to happen a lot more in many more communities to bring the cat population down. But, you know, we are moving in the right direction, and I'm seeing far fewer people get their dogs from puppy mills and instead adopt, and we just got to keep that momentum going. So if I want to buy a puppy or a kitten, is going to Petco the best way to do that, or do I want to go to a shelter, or do you go to private breeders? Yeah, so um, this is my personal opinion, because there, there are a lot of different opinions out there when it mm-hmm. comes to, to adopting animals. Obviously, there are probably some really great breeders out there, and I don't want to take away from the work that they are doing. In my opinion, though, there are a lot of animals out there who don't have homes and who could face euthanasia or a bad situation. So for me, I would always encourage someone to go to a shelter or to um, go to Best Friends Animal Society, or um, there's another one called Cause. There's a bunch of different organizations out there, and there are thousands of dogs out there in the state of Utah right now that need homes. So even if you're looking for a specific breed, you can contact these organizations and say, hey, I'm looking for a Doberman Pinscher. They're likely to have one, or they'll let you know when they get one. So in my opinion, it's best to adopt those dogs that may not have a, a good future in front of them instead of going to a breeder. That's interesting. Um, I, I've always kind of wondered this about this. Since you are kind of like the voice to the public, do you feel that you have difficulty expressing your personal beliefs and feelings, or do you feel more empowered? Oh, gosh, no. I find it really hard to express my personal feelings because um, at the end of the day, as a journalist, and again, we've lost sight of this with the MSNBCs and the Fox News is out there. As a journalist, it's not my opinion that matters. What my job is is to bring to people, here are all of your options, here's what's going on, you decide. So I really try to keep my personal opinions out of it, <laughs> which is why when we were talking about the dog, I said, well, hey, listen, this is just my opinion, and then I still even give the good positive side to the breeder because there are always more than one side to every story. And um, so I, and I try really hard to realize that just because I have a strong opinion about something doesn't mean that everybody's going to agree with me. Do you worry about being seen drinking a glass of wine or being at a sushi bar? And having and being a public figure, but not and a journalist, like do you worry about like out in public? Yeah, yeah, yes, of course. Especially in the day of social media, and especially in a state like Utah, where so many people do not drink. Um, you know, I, I don't really talk about it much, but yeah, I mean, I do love having a glass of wine with my dinner, and I do sometimes worry. Okay, who's sitting around me going, "Oh my gosh, I'm never going to watch her again because she's drinking a glass of wine." But at the end of the day, what I've come to realize is that I have to live my life, too. 
because I'm a human being and I, I want to be happy. And so, you know, if somebody's going to judge me over having a glass of wine with my dinner, you know, there's nothing I can really do about that. I can't live my life for other people. Now, you're not going to find me standing up on the bar going crazy doing shots. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that is not going to happen. But, yeah, I mean, that's it's it's one of those things, yes, you're a public figure and you have to be concerned with what other people think, but at the end of the day, you got to live your life, too. Now, when when did you first really feel that you were in the public eye? Was it when you got on TV or was it a transition? Was it pretty immediate? I would say when it was... It, it was probably a year into being in this business when I was in Abilene and people started noticing me at the grocery store or, you know, at the convenience store and that kind of thing. And so that's when I first started realizing, oh, gosh, you know, people are watching me when I'm doing things outside and, and all of that kind of stuff. But what's really been interesting is I've been in this business for 12 years, and so I have basically grown with social media. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I first got into the business, there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook. And so I kind of took the route of sharing my entire life with my viewers and everyone on Facebook and Twitter because I don't feel like I have a lot to hide. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a blogger who took a photo of me out of context, cropped it, and called it something it was not. <gasps> And that was the moment where I said, okay, scale back. I can't share everything with everyone because not everyone is going to be responsible with the content. And so that was, um, that was probably about six years ago now, seven years ago. No, yeah, six years ago. And so since then, I've really scaled back what I share um, on, online because I don't, I don't want things to be taken out of context for people to judge me for who I am. So. Yeah, that's that's kind of how I feel about the public image thing. So speaking of judgment, how do you handle like the criticism? Because I, I, I'm sure people <laughs> email you all the time about one thing or another. Yeah, didn't you see the thing I posted this week with the lady talking about me wearing suspenders and looking like a hick? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of. <laughs> like you take oh, it, you funny. you yeah, take it I mean, in good jest, but I just I it's yeah. How do you do it? You know. Um, you got to get a thick skin. When I first got into this business, I, I would get so bothered by it. And I'd go home crying, like, why would they say these mean things to me? But then you just come to realize that there is, uh, it's like a spectrum, right? There are the people on one side of the spectrum that will write you because they genuinely want to help you out. And they think that they're making a suggestion like, hey, I love you, blah, 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 blah. I don't like that lipstick color. So if they're saying it like that, you know, that's something to, I, I can look at that and go, okay, that's probably valid. But then at the other end of the spectrum, there are trolls and people who are just really unhappy with their lives, and they will just try to say things to be nasty and get a rise out of you. And so somewhere inside of that spectrum, you just have to look at what's being said, take a deep breath and go, what part of this am I going to take? And then what part of this am I going to give right back to them? They can keep that. And so that's kind of what it comes down to. When someone sends me something, I will always respond and I will always be polite, but I will only take the stuff that even seems valid. If it's just somebody being nasty, I just throw it right back. I don't need it. You take working out very seriously and you take your health very seriously. And one of the things I enjoy about you is you show your community helpful tips on how to lower your weight, improve your cholesterol, 
deal with your body image, especially if you're a woman. Mm-hmm. Is that hard for you to be a role model for women and to be a voice of being healthy when it's so easy to be unhealthy? Yeah. Okay. So, so that's a really interesting question and a good one. So I grew up working out. I mean, I started working out because I was an athlete when I was like 14 years old. And so um, being an athlete and working out and being healthy has always been a part of my life. And then as you get older, you start to realize that working out is also, you know, going to prolong your life and it's, and it's all of these great things for you. And so, but then there's also, as a woman, you, you work out because you want to look good, right? Mm-hmm. So there's all of these different reasons why, why women work out. And over the past, I'd say, five or so years, I've really started to want to empower women. And I've really started looking at the things that I do and the things that other women do. And I go, okay, what part of this is empowering this woman versus making her feel like she's a piece of meat? And so my whole thing, my whole focus is always on trying to help women not only be healthy but feel better about themselves in whatever way, shape, or form that is. I want women to know that they are worth so much more than being looked at, and I also want them to know that that a lot of it is their brain. I don't know how to explain it to guys very well. It's really hard because as a woman, you're taught your physical appearance is really like a number one. Um, But as I've gotten older, I'm like, no, it's really not. Why can't we be valued for our minds as well? And so... We walk this fine line of wanting to look good, but also wanting to be appreciated. So, I don't know, that's a whole big old fat answer for really, I want women to feel good about themselves, whatever way, shape, or form that is. And so that's why I do the stories I do. Speaking of the the stories that you do, I, I particularly enjoy a lot of your sweeps pieces. Where where do you get the idea, like, can you walk me through the process of how you, you know, develop your sweeps pieces? Sure. Yeah, so a lot of it, I watch a ton of documentaries um, because I feel like that's just a way for people to really understand what's going on outside of their communities and around the world. And um, I had watched several documentaries on street harassment, on domestic violence, on sexual assault, and it really got me thinking, what kind of stuff like this happens here in Utah? And so we'll speak directly about um, my, my street harassment story. Yeah. I just started talking with women in the community and saying, hey, have you experienced this? Tell me about your experience. And I saw more and more women saying, yeah, I've experienced not only street harassment, but like public groping and like, you know, um, harassment on different levels, like and, and some rape. And you go, oh, my gosh, this is just not being talked about whatsoever. And so from there, I build upon that, and I find specialists to talk to me about the issues. Um, and so that's, that's generally what it is. I, I find out about something, I see how it's impacting our community, and then I build the story around that. You write very well. Your ability to state and relate what's going on is very easy to see and understand was that hard for you to develop? Because a lot of people can't do the quality of craftsmanship that you have. Well, thank you for that. Um, and I w- I, I'd say, yeah, it is. It's hard for anyone to develop. I mean, we all learn the same ABCs and 1, 2, 3s going through school. 
obviously there are going to be people who excel in math, people who excel in science, and then people who excel in writing. And that, that was me. I excelled in writing. But writing for television is a whole different beast. And it really is, you get into this business green. You know, you think you know what you're doing. <laughs> but you look back, you know, after five years and you go, oh my gosh, I was horrible. <laughs> and so it's all about learning. And the biggest thing for me was surrounding myself with amazing journalists and not being afraid to ask, hey, why did you do that? Hey, what do you think about this? How would you change this and why? You know, not only asking people for help, but understanding why they do what they do. And that has made me a better journalist because of the half a dozen people who have mentored me. How important is it to have a good relationship, not only with your journalists and your camera operators, but for your news director and general manager, not just because of how much they've experienced and how much they can give to you and to your craft. Yeah, I think it is important to be a team with everyone at your station, from your general manager to sales to news director to floor crew. I think that if you have a mutual respect as a teammate with those people, you will all flourish and grow. Um, so I, I believe it does, it's not just your management, you know, it's not just your field crew that you go out with. I think that everybody in a station can learn from one another. And if we treat each other with respect and as a team and understand that without one of us, the whole team falls apart. If we could all have that mentality going into work every day, I mean, that's it, going to make the product that much better. In some of the places I work with, I work with a bunch of grumpy Gusses who <laughs> aren't interested in anyone but themselves and the job that they're doing, and they're very hesitant to teach and to give their knowledge. What's your advice? And for any field of business, what's your advice to that person that's four, five, six years into their profession and starts to wonder? How do I overcome the people that just are trying to hold you down? Right, and you're going to come across that. That's never going to go away. It just won't. Um, so you, you have a couple of choices on, on how to deal with folks who may not be the easiest to deal with. You can just kind of go, all right, do, how, how does interacting with that person on a daily basis affect me? Do I need to interact with this person on a daily basis? And if you don't, then don't. But if you do, I always say kill them with kindness. And if that doesn't work, a great thing to do is walk up to that person and say, hey, listen, you know, I, I feel like there's something going on here. Can, can we talk? Have I done something to upset you? Um, because I really respect you as my coworker, and I really want to, you know, have a better relationship here. It is hard as nails for even the grumpiest of Gus's to look at you and still be mean after you approach them that way. So that would, that would be my suggestion. Well, I would use that. <laughs> <laughs> and here's another thing. There might be grumpy people in your newsroom. Smile, say hi to them, and walk past. But for every one of those grumpy people in there, there is someone in, in your um, office who is going to be willing to help and mentor you. You've got to find that person. You have to seek that person out. When does patience run its course for a young person moving up in a corporation? Because you have to be patient You have, because there's a lot to learn in any corporation, but it comes to that point where you have to 
fend for yourself and ask for something new, whether it's mm-hmm. money, whether it's benefits, whether it's more creative opportunities. When did you learn how to ask for what you needed? You know, I learned in my, my very first job. Within two months of being there, our morning anchor was leaving, and I was the weekend one-man band reporter, and I marched into his office, my news director's office, and I said, I want that job. And he kind of laughed, and I said, no, I'm serious, I want that job. And he said, well, we don't have anybody to fill the position yet, so we'll throw you up there and see how you do. And then from there, it was just faking it until I made it, you know? <laughs> I mean, I just had to sink or swim. And so that was that was me. And so from that point on, I realized if you just walk in with determination and confidence, it's really hard for people to, to not take that seriously. And so I've had that happen several times in my career where I've just walked in and said, this is what I want. But I think it all depends on where you are in your career, how long you've been at whatever job uh, you're in, and if, there, if you see an opportunity in front of you. You know, if the opportunity's not there and you go ask, and they're, you know, they're going to say, well, you don't have the opportunity right now. So just always keep your eye open for the next best thing and make sure you are prepared for that before you begin to ask, you know, because you don't, you don't want to try for a new job or a new position if you haven't mastered the one you're in yet. Does that make sense? It's very smart because one of the things, you know, I work as a camera operator and as a set producer, and in my field of sport production, there's two age groups. There's the 55 to 64-year-old person who has three years left in their career, and then there's the 34-year-old person like me who's hungry, wanting to make the more money, to get the better job, to get the better position, and knowing that there's three years to go before spots open up. And if you try to force someone out, the one that gets forced out is you. Right, right. Um, So what you can do... For the time being, keep an eye on your quote-unquote competitors and see what it is they do. See where it is that they may be lacking and try to make yourself better in those positions. Do things that your boss will see, hey, that guy's you know doing this well. Hey, that guy's doing that well. Do things to make yourself stand out. And then that way, when it does come time for something to happen, you're the first person that's on your boss's mind. Even go to your boss and say, hey, you know, I've noticed, you know, X, Y, or Z hasn't been really taken care of. Would you mind if I, you know, kind of take the lead on that? Or say, hey, I'm looking for, um, you know, I-, I want more job. I want more to do. Um, I-, I feel like I'm kind of stagnant. Is there something that you can give me to work on? You know, ask for it. Ask for the jobs as opposed to asking for the salary. And you'll see, your boss will start to see that you are capable of doing those things. So when the promotion time comes up, you're at the top of the list. Do you wish that you had a bigger team? in, Or uh, do journalists in general wish that it was like the old days in television where master control was full when... You had 10 more camera operators. You had three more producers. You had tech uh, directors. Do you wish that there were more people on your staff? Oh, of course. We all do. We would all want more. There's not a station in town right now that wouldn't tell you, sure, we could use a few more bodies. 
But the fact of the matter is, this is the direction of our business right now. And we either have to deal with it and, and conform to the changes, or, or we get flushed out. And so, as, as much as I'd like to sit and wish and think, you know, I wish it was like the old days, I instead go, okay, there's nothing I can do about that. What can I do to help make our team stronger? And that means a lot more work most of the time, but you know what? I'm willing to do it to make sure our product doesn't suffer. So earlier you mentioned that you were kind of like the the direction that news is going, kind of more sensational, kind of, you know, less about facts, more about personal politics. What Mm -hmm. Could you kind of tell me a little bit more, like what specifically uh, the direction of news that it's going, like what's what's wrong with that? Yeah, so... There's this interesting thing called the internet, the <laughs> interweb, <laughs> and um, it's really it's really changed journalism in so many ways because now people can just go straight to their computer and get their news information right then and there. They don't have to wait for the five or the six or the ten p.m. newscast to get their news, and so we as journalists and as news stations are trying to continue to get people to watch TV while we're also scrambling to try and figure out how to monetize the Internet because as people watch TV less, advertisers are willing to spend less. Mm. And so without advertising dollars, there is no TV. You get it? Yeah. And so, so I think what is happening in television is that on TV itself, we're trying so hard just to get people to watch that things are getting more sensational, right? And we're trying to put more products on the air, but we're trying to save money, so we're cutting down bodies and having the bodies that we have left do more. And then not only that, we got to post stuff on the web. we got to try and work that to get people on the web to look and so that maybe we can start selling ads for the web. So this is the problem, is that we end up more focused on just trying to get eyes to tune in than on the product itself. What was and your then the product oh, suffers? What was your thought when Katie Couric signed a six million annual salary with Yahoo? You know that was actually kind of encouraging because obviously, eventually, we are all going to move to the internet. Um, as, as somebody who's been in the business for twelve years, I wonder what my future is going to look like in five or ten years. You know, I wonder, am I going to have a job? So to see Katie go to Yahoo and actually sign this big deal, I'm crossing my fingers that it works out. I really am. I think that's a really, really big paycheck. I think Yahoo is, I don't know, be a little too generous. But hey, if it works out and that becomes a new way of doing news, then that gives journalists like me some hope for the future. Well, I'm excited for your future, and I'm excited when I get to watch your news because I know that you're not going to come with half your energy. I know that you're not going to be on air hungover. I know that your punctuation and your story is going to be perfect, if not nearly perfect, every single day. And there's a lot of us that see that in you. And I just really appreciate your journal. And I want you to know that. Thank you so much. Um, I, I had one more quick question. If for someone who's starting out today who wants to be a journalist, could you maybe tell them like, you know, what was something that you wish you knew starting out or some advice that you could give them? Yes. Starting out, um, I wish I knew I didn't know everything. 
<laughs> because you graduate and you a lot of times think you know everything. And at the end of the day, when you walk into a new newsroom, you need to shove a slice of humble pie in your face and walk in being nice to everyone and looking around at everyone and the work that they do and figuring out how you can make your work better by watching those around you. That's, that's the number one thing I would say. Always take constructive criticism. Always ask for advice from journalists who are more seasoned than you and always know that you have more to learn. So, Kim, we can catch you on uh, Good For Utah from one of the five. Uh, what are all your shows? I am on Monday through Friday at 5, 6, and 10 p.m. And then what's your Twitter and all that? At ABC4Kim on Twitter, at ABC4Kim on Instagram, and my Facebook page is also facebook.com slash at ABC4Kim. On June 11th, you're emceeing the Heart and Stroke Ball? Yes. What is that? So that's the American Heart Association. It's one of their big fundraisers. It's at Lakai this year. And it's it's kind of fun. It's like a garden atmosphere. They do um, a big silent auction. I'm not sure who our guest speaker is. They haven't really sent me my script yet, but generally we'll bring somebody up who has been affected by heart disease, and that person will come up and kind of talk about their story, and then we just try to raise funds for the American Heart Association. That's very kind of you to lend your name to that organization. It's what I do, man. <laughs> I, I love charities. Just one more question now. Uh, do you get nervous talking in front of crowds more than talking in front of the camera? You know, I used to. And when I, so for example, when I go to the American Heart Association uh, Garden Ball, I will likely for the first minute feel a little nervous and then it kind of goes away. It's again, it all comes down to human nature. We don't want to mess up or look stupid in front of people. And so that's why we get nervous. So yeah, still a little bit, but it's, it's a lot better now than it used to be. Well, thank you so much for your time, Kim. I really appreciate you. It's my pleasure, and guys, thanks for the kind words. You really made my day. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed days, the dark sacred night. And I think to myself